You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, we've got another episode of Lanyap Podcast. We have a special guest this week. Jason Baker. Jason is a former NFL punter, played most of his career with the Carolina Panthers and played college football at Iowa, which also I want to just digress. There's no better place to be a punter than Big Ten, Iowa or Iowa State. So you picked <laughs> pick correctly on that one. If you like to get a lot of reps right now, that's a good place to be. <laughs> And then I would love to hear about your NFL career, and I know we're going to spend some time there, but we're going to talk mostly about your post-NFL venture, which you're CEO of Patterson Center, which helps families and businesses really organize and improve and drive towards success. And so, Jason, appreciate you taking the time with us today. Matt, thanks for having me, man. This is great. Let's first talk about your NFL career, maybe just the transition from playing career to what you're doing today. Last couple of years, you're in the NFL, you're staring down retirement. Talk about your years leading into maybe more of the real world and what led you to what you're doing today. Well, there's a truth. It's sort of like the statistics on death. It's 100%. Everyone who ever starts playing in the National Football League, that time will end. And I can tell you that when I first got in, my first training camp was 2001. And I remember we had a preseason game 12 days into training camp. And I thought, man, that would be cool. Like if I could get through 12 days of this and maybe get on television, like play even in a preseason game, that'd sort of be a box check. That would be pretty awesome. And then, you know, 12 years later, I, you know, had had a lot of success and I was still doing it. So I tried to always keep that in perspective. So when it did end before I expected it to end, I tried to remind myself that I actually didn't expect to be there for more than two weeks when I got started. So I'm very fortunate to have played as long as I did. I did not, although I would claim to have been educated and had a mind above just playing football in my life. I was also very committed to maximizing my performance. And I wasn't thinking that I was done at 12 years. I thought for sure I would have an opportunity to continue to play and there's lots of big reasons why. And But I sit here today, hyper grateful for what I've learned. And the further I get away from the locker room, the more I value the things that I actually learned while playing that I would have never expected would be serving me at the age of 44 living in the marketplace. So very grateful for it. Yeah. And I used to love, absolutely love playing in New Orleans. It's just the fans are great. The food is great. Any building with a roof on top was great. Although the one year we had to play at LSU after Katrina, not so great. That was a miserable, that is not a, I hope I'm not offending any of your LSU fans, but that's a terrible stadium and place to play football. It's probably awesome for a fan though. But I felt like I was in like a YMCA locker room or something. <laughs> you punted to a lot of guys throughout your playing career. Is there one that stands out? I can think of a couple that were during the mid to late 2000s that were just very dangerous. But who would you say you were punting away from the most? Well, you guys had Reggie Bush, and he was always effective. We had a lot of success against him. Just the style that they had there was sort of a home run or, or nothing kind of thing. And those are good if you can keep the home runs down because that generally produces a good day. But, you know, Darren Sproles was awesome. And he was so good. At, like his decision making was so good. And he was there with you guys for a little while. I think everybody during that season, you know, Devin Hester and not just him, but the roster that the Bears had at the time and the, the coaching they had around special teams and stuff, they were just stacked. And so many teams were forced to, you know, punt the ball away. And we had a lot of success for 
number of years doing that. And towards the end of my career, we had a coach that thought he'd get real creative and try something different and it didn't work out. That was one of those days where they weren't particularly good and other things. So you felt like, well, if we don't let that guy beat us, the chances are we're going to win the game. And so you would almost take a week where you're just punting the ball in the bleachers, which is just, that's obnoxious because it feels like you're conceding, but they earned it. I mean, they were outstanding and they won a lot of games. So he was always really good, but you guys always had threats out there. And a lot of times it was a product of the way that coach Peyton built his roster around drew, you know, you get guys that you get the ball in their hands and they can make plays. And typically those guys can also return kicks and punts. And so you never had a week off with the saints. So especially in the return game, we could spend a whole podcast talking about playing in the NFL and how amazing that experience must've been. I want to, highlight i think the best value for the people listening to this is yeah. specifically what you're doing at the patterson center and yeah absolutely specifically within the patterson center what you're doing with families so do you mind just spending five minutes talking about what the patterson center is and and what you do for high net worth families well let me segue from football to this so after that time that you were just talking about i had spent a couple of years doing what we call the do do A lot of players do this when they're done. They, they try a little bit of this, it doesn't work. They try a little bit of that, it doesn't work. They try a little bit of this, it doesn't work. And it's kind of a dance, you know, one foot in, one foot out. And I had somebody that cared about me a lot, came up to me and said, hey, man, I'd really like you to, I'd like you to call this number. I think you ought to get on a, a plane and go see this guy. And so he handed me Pete Richardson's phone number. And Pete Richardson's probably the best, I would say, strategic planning facilitator that is breathing right now. And uh, fortunately, he made room for me. And I went out and did what's called a life plan. And it allowed me a ton of clarity. And it really was the framework that I was able to walk away from football into the next act in my life. It it gave me the perspective on what to do and how to make those decisions and what I was about, what I was focused on, what my purpose in life was and what I viewed as success in my life. And so today I am the CEO and primary leader in the Patterson Center, but I came by it as a consumer. And I was so moved by what it was that I actually immediately went and got licensed to hold all the Patterson licensing in my private practice. And then it manifested itself into where we are today. So the Patterson Center is, we would fall into the bucket of a typical consulting firm. And I don't mean to minimize that, but we are a consulting firm and we compete with everybody from like your McKenzie's and Deloitte's to mom and pop shops all over the map. And just depends on what we're doing. But we were built on two primary intellectual property folders, if you will. And one is focused on individual family services and the other is organizational services. And so our individual family services is built on a system we call life plan, which is the thing that I was just describing that I experienced. It's a thing that Tom Patterson created, the gentleman who was the inventor of this back in the 60s, 70s. He designed the system to help people get clarity on what exactly they want out of their life and how to go live it. So how to get from where you are to where you want to be. And so that was something that he spent a lot of time developing. And it's technically about a 50-year-old resource now. And then the other side of it is a thing we call Stratop. There's a lot of offerings that are built off the Stratop model, but that's what we do for organizations. And we use it today and everything from Fortune 50 businesses down to small sole proprietorships that have you know five to $700,000 in revenue. And so, and that's built on how do we help organizations get from where they are to where they want to go. And so that's actually the mission of Patterson. It's not to help design really great strategic operating systems or anything like that. It's actually to help people get to where they want to go. And we have what we think is the most unique intellectual property in the market to do it. And it's powerful. I've experienced it as an individual. My family leverages it. You know, I mean, I've got a lot of years of practicing and it's, uh, as I said before, I have no personal equity in the creation of it. I encountered it as a consumer and was so moved by it that 
I leveraged it in my own practice and then to the point where we actually purchased the company and just trying to drive it to where Tom's always dreamed it would go. And so we're third generation stewards of this. And that's uh, something we're very proud to be a part of. Can you walk through the life cycle of a family coming into family life plan through a family strata, through plan management? How does that typically typically work for a family? And, and who are your target? Is it a multi-generational planning? How do you typically work? So we have an offering that we reference is it's multi-generational stewardship. It's built out of the model of how does a family as it moves from generation to generation and as people accrue wealth, how do they actually pass it through to generation to not only maximize the health of the people involved and protect the health of the people involved, but also live out the vision for the family. Like what does success look like for this legacy of this family? And so this is one of my favorite offerings. It's one of the few that actually uses tools from both of those intellectual property buckets that we were just talking about. And we break it into five steps, but it's a really great tool to use as we bring a family into a family office. And it begins with what we call the life plan tool in each household. And when we reference a household, it's all of the entities involved in the family. So however many generations it involves. So if you have patriarch, matriarch, household, we actually run a specific play with them individually, as well as the next generation, each household. So if they're individuals or couples, we pull them through a specific life plan exercise, which in a life plan, it is a relatively intimate facilitation where the individual or couple actually has a facilitator. They do a one-on-one session that takes a couple days, two days of an individual, three days if it's a couple. And they get pulled through an exercise to help them have clarity on one, why they're here, like their mission in their life, what success looks like for them uniquely to them, their household, so to speak, what they're about, where they want to go. And then we want to be able to take that perspective from each one of those households in the family and pull that into the group setting. And that way people understand clearly what role they are interested in or not interested in as we consider the structure of the family in the family office. And so it begins with life plan. We do life plan for all the households. And then we move into a phase of what we call the family strat op. And so we sort of treat the family as an organization and there's certain elements of our strat op work that we pull into the family. And so that would look like a uh, an annual retreat where the core members of the family are all on the site. And we have a facilitator there and they pull them through the system and we establish everything. We use a lot of perspective in our work. So we, we actually do a diagnostic tool that we call the four helpful list. And that's just like, as we sit here as a family, what's right, wrong, confused and missing. And so we do this really robust, healthy, facilitated conversation helps surface the real core issues in the family. And so we can surface those and then focus on them. We'll lay out a vision for the family. So vision is simply with a time horizon. So you lay out a time horizon. What does success look like for this family? And a lot of times that's most heavily spoken into by the matriarch or patriarch of the family saying, this is what they desire of the future generations. And so we'll lay out vision. There will be a family mission stated, meaning what are we here to do? What are we about? We'll lay out core strategies, core values for the family. So what is the intended culture of our family? And then coming out of that, we actually go after what we call our wins, what's important now, but we'll actually surface initiatives that need to be worked on by the family, no different than an organization. So there may be some things that need to be focused on. And the cool part about that, especially with you guys, is what I would consider sort of intimate third-party partners to the family is a lot of times those core issues get surfaced and they actually involve your help. So this is a very Socratic process. So we pull a family through an exercise where we're not telling them how to go operate as a family. We're Socratically deriving that information out of them. And then we lay it out there and say, now, what do we do with this? And a lot of times it turns it into, rather than potentially something that's prescribed to them, they're actually seeking the type of things that you guys 
other estate like planning elements or trust attorneys, those type of things can actually plug in and really be a value add to them. So we pulled it through that. Once we get through that, we get into a family structure conversation where we actually use an organizational design for the family, which will capture roles as well as any succession issues. Those things are all kind of addressed in that work. And then we take all of that and we craft a family constitution. And that is a written document. It captures all those elements of the things that we've just talked about. Who's involved, what we're trying to do, what matters to us, how we go about it, what our core strategies are for the way we do it. And it lives in this constitution. And then once we're at that place, handing that document over to people like yourself actually unlock your guys' ability to really help serve the family because they have declared this is what we're trying to do. And then you guys are allowed to come alongside them with the resources you have to actually help them execute that with clarity. And so there's no shifting and pivoting. We've got a good idea of what we're trying to do. And then of course, we have a, what I would consider a very malleable or customizable management process. So it really depends on what the family's appetite is for amending and adapting, but we'll make a recommendation. And that could be something where we're engaged quarterly or monthly or annually, whatever they would choose to do. I'm curious as far as like you go through this process and then you repeat Mm -hmm. on a regular basis and review how do you guys work to ensure accountability to the constitution and what you guys have developed? So in the org design, typically we've laid out who is accountable to what. And then uh, in the actual governance language, the family will declare how they would want accountability to be managed. Obviously, the joint accountability of the team is the most powerful thing. And so that's valuable. But the reality is that it's a written drafted living, breathing thing that we continue to reflect upon. So at some point, if we're choosing not to act on something, we will absolutely, as professional resources, then absolutely surface or declare, hey, are we meeting our expectations here? If for some reason they're in denial about it. But typically, families or organizations typically will embrace accountability when they know like, I'm going to have to look in this mirror over and over and over again. At some point, I'm just going to have to declare I'm refusing to do something I've said I needed to do. And so it takes a pretty extreme measure if we're operating in the process to completely ignore it. We can't control the will of elements of the family. And so you want to make sure in the governance that it says clearly how that gets handled. And so that's something that's addressed in the constitution. And then it's our job to make sure that they see it. And honestly, it's our job and your job and anyone else that's supporting the family to recognize that if you guys have declared this is where you want to go and these things must happen to get there, then we're certainly going to embrace getting there and maintaining our accountability to it. And then you will have much more indication of how that gets handled based on how the family typically deals with that kind of thing. So, but we try to address it in the constitution as best we can. I think laying it out in written format is really a great way to any sort of objective. And our dad has always said this is that if you write it down, it'll happen basically. Yeah. It's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore if it's right in front of your face all the time. Right, exactly. And there's a psychological component to that as well, too. Yeah. There's a uh, interesting book that's called The Psychology of Persuasion. Mm-hmm. But once people actually write something down, they make a commitment to that in write, written format. It's yeah. really hard to go back on it. Especially when you introduce others to that commitment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happens. Doug, imagine sitting in front of the family and we're saying, guys, here this is. I mean, we have the Constitution signed. I mean, technically, there's not legal binding to it, but like you're agreeing to what we're doing. In, in a group of people, like we're saying this out loud, like, hey, everyone in this bloodline, this is what we're doing. And they're all like, yep, let's go. And the cool part is, is after everyone does their life plan work, it creates opportunities for healthy opt-outs. So the life plan work is really the core thing in this. When we go through that 
in individualized focus with each household. Not every household, just because your last name is the same. This is a, probably a really terrible example right now, but I was in the gym early this morning and I, on national news, they're discussing whether William and Harry will walk together behind the queen's coffin. Right. And I'm thinking, but I mean, if you just think about the clearly Harry has decided, I actually don't want to be a part of the stewardship of this. Like I got a different plan. We would like it to play out a little more healthy than what we watch on CNN. So we can do that by allowing people to declare for themselves what it is they want out of their life. And then look at how that fits into the generational stewardship model of the family. And there absolutely could be scenarios where the best thing for the health of everyone and the actual execution of the mission of the family is that that person is resourced to go do that which fits them and they've declared they want to do. I mean, the worst thing that happens is that remains embedded and it becomes toxic and then potentially even becomes a legal nightmare. And I'm sure you guys have dealt with all kinds of dissolutions and things like that. Like it's just, there's a healthier way to go about it. And we try to address all that stuff on the front side. How do you introduce, let me just give you a couple different dynamics with mm -hmm. families that are pretty common. And there are two ends of the spectrum. The first is the family in which the, let's say, second or third generation are disengaged fully and that the matriarch or the patriarch want familial involvement, but others either don't want to be yeah. involved, haven't been involved, or don't know what to do, what steps to take to become involved on one end. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the like second or third generation in which there are multiple members of that generation yeah. who are fighting to be the top dog. And so you have siblings that are fighting because one thinks they're smarter than the other or should be in a different role than the other, et cetera. And so I'm a mom or a dad and I want my family involved fully in We've got a lot of wealth here. We've got planning to do. We want everyone involved, but I can't get my kids and grandkids involved too. My kids are so involved that they want to be number one and they're competing for that. How do you guys just introduce yourselves into those different dynamics? So everything will start with the life plans. And so we get involved in a process where our major point of contact in the family, which is typically the matriarch, patriarch, or their representative you end up getting a thing where they effectively are inviting all of the family into this resource. And so then we would individually engage. And sometimes there's even an issue getting that engagement until they understand like, this isn't for public consumption. Like you're going to go through an individualized process that under any circumstance is going to be really valuable for you. And then you're going to choose to take the perspective you've gained from that process into this conversation with the family. And if you've learned like, and it's a very robust, in-depth process. So we get in really deep into like, what are the real core talents that this person has? What is the vision they have for their own life? What are the passions they have? Like we look for that crosshairs between those tools they have in their tool belt and where they really feel called to use them and let them see that clearly. But in their mind, that's actually happening sort of independent of any conversation as the universal family. Like they're learning about themselves first. So typically that helps because they actually get clarity that they may not have. So a lot of people are operating under assumptions, especially in some of those more dysfunctional scenarios. But when we see the different data points, the thinking wavelength, the way they're internally wired, their family history, like all these other things, it actually helps people see the right type of role they would play. And actually so it helps people see when someone is in fact not fit for a certain role. And that doesn't mean not fit like they're, they're unworthy. It means they're actually fit for something else. And we get clarity in what that is and we can see it. And then we can actually leverage the profiles of those different exercises to help them see like, you know, I know this is what you want and you think you want, but however, this is what happens if you're in that role and it actually doesn't fit you. Like, do you see that it doesn't fit you? You actually 
are better suited to go left than right here, that kind of thing. And they'll Socratically see that and declare it for themselves. So that's the first part. The second part is the way that we handle what we call the family strat op. And so a lot of times these conversations are built on assumptions or lack of clarity. So you may have matriarch, patriarch sort of pushing, hey, we really want you involved. And a lot of times they might not even be able to declare exactly what they want to have happen. And so there's a degree of confusion on what their generation two or three are actually even being asked to be involved in or what they would be doing. So in that family strata, we get like black and white clarity on where this family stewardship model is headed, what the desired outcome is, what the ground rules for playing, which we call culture. Like, how do I think, live and relate to the world around us? How does this family think, live and relate to the world around us? And we lay all that out and the path becomes much clearer and the opt-in, opt-out becomes much clearer and much healthier. And so that is typically the way we address it. And the other part is it's professional. I'm going to boast about my team. I believe it's world-class professional facilitation with a 60-year-old intellectual property model that's been proven. So other methods may have failed, but I love the chances we have when we get in the room with the right group of people that we can actually gain clarity and alignment out of a group of people that are trying to make something happen. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get people to do things that they are not fit to do, but it does mean we will get great clarity on what the puzzle pieces actually look like before we even try to assemble the puzzle, if that makes sense. So it's not a hopeless scenario when those things exist, but we don't fabricate the truth. Like we're going to pull the truth out. And if the truth actually means generation two is not suited, then we've got to navigate that. Right. And it will probably also declare for us with some clarity on, yeah, there's four candidates for X, Y, Z role. And one or two of them are just blatantly, clearly the better options. All right. It's not necessarily easy conversations, but we should have conviction in the conversations that we need to have. So typically, if you're engaging a family that's multi-generational, from the point of engagement to the point in which you have a family constitution, what is that typical timeline? How much time are family members spending with people from your team and with each other to get everything written down? Great question. So this is really effectively used at onboarding. It's also can be effectively used kind of the top of the future cycles of your work with the client. So it doesn't have to be the first time, but if you have an existing client that's sort of ready for like their their family meeting, like this is sort of a good time to start this. We're typically target 120 to 150 days. And meaning from the day we say green light, that means scheduling all of the household life plans, getting them executed, running the plays for the family strat up, run the plays for the organizational design conversation, and then drafting of the constitution. It's funny. I can tell the story in one way and it seems highly ambitious. I can tell it in a different way. And it seems like, why is this taking you guys so long? But if you can imagine if you had a family that had six households in it, so maybe we have two generations or a third generation or whatever, and we've got to do six life plans. Our facilitators have to schedule two-day sessions or three-day sessions with each one of those households and then execute them. So you know the type of people you work with, like asking them to sit for two days in a room next week is not an option. So you get the initial scheduling challenges. As soon as we start that conversation, we actually lay out when is the family strat up. And that is generally a family retreat type event. So then we have that window because we have to get all the life plans done before that family strata, right? So that's sort of some of the threshold. And once we get that family strata going, the rest of the group work actually becomes much smaller. But each household will have a two or three day engagement with the facilitator. The family strata is typically the largest population of people, which is probably everyone in those household conversations plus a couple. That's generally a day to two days. Typically, depending on how much we get done in the life plans, that can be a day, maybe a day and a wake up. You know, you do all day and maybe finish the following morning. The structure conversation is a small group. That's three or four people that, you know, can think most clearly about what the organization needs to look like. 
And then the family constitution is largely done on our side with all the content and then proofed and corrected and edited by certain individuals in the family. And so our goal is to be able to put that in someone's hand at about the four month mark is our goal. And then at that point, we go into a management model to keep the content moving and you guys go about your business supporting it. Does that make sense? Like you guys are actually technically will go and financially, legally, and otherwise go execute on the stuff that's on that constitution. And typically, how does it work from a collateral perspective so that a family knows whether they're doing what they said they're going to do or violating the constraints of the constitution and their roles? Okay. So everyone's life plan lives individual uniquely in a secure electronic framework for them, right? So that's not public consumption data, but it all lives in a secure electronic platform. Also, you know, there's three or four different ways they can get the content. That's easy. The constitution itself will allow that to live wherever it is they choose to have it live. But every time we do follow-up sessions, we're always coming back and referencing the existing content, right? So these aren't one and done conversations. These are living, breathing documents that we continue to reference over time. And we will typically try to store them on... So if you consider like a security wall, it's typically invited by the families that it lives somewhere on their side of that, which we have no problem with. We also are equipped to keep it on our side, but from a security and access perspective, we almost would prefer it to live on the family side, which could mean it lives with people like yourself. And then we just want to maintain access for maintenance. But it is perpetually brought into our life. Like We'll actually have a plan on a page that exists in the Constitution's generally an amendment to that. And that plan on a page is basically the dashboard for this multi-generational stewardship model. I think that the sort of value proposition involved with this type of service for a variety of different families is huge. From the standpoint of, you know, we all have stories and know anecdotally or personally with families that have wealth and without purpose and the resulting consequences of that from a generation two or generation three or beyond standpoint. What do you do from the standpoint of like, this is a type of service that people may be like certainly get value out of, but may not know exists. What do you do from a marketing standpoint to try to drive new business and educate people as far as like, the benefits associated with your services. So I'm going to answer this question at the risk of what's going to sound potentially narcissistic. It's organic marketing 100%. Like at some point you guys may say, hey, what's the website? Our website needs a lot of attention, but we have $0 in our marketing budget. That's awesome. And I say this with whatever humility somebody can say that with. I don't try to take it as an element of pride, but a bigger question I have is if I did market and we got the traction that would typically come from most marketing plans, what would I do with it from a capacity perspective? And you're probably very aware of the labor environment. It could be one of my biggest problems if we opened up some elaborate marketing thing. This is sort of the challenge that I make to our team. And that is that our goal is always to do the best work we can, that somehow we will be a blessing to the organizations and families that we work with. And that if we remain focused on that, it'll take care of itself. And by God's grace, so far, that has absolutely been the case. And so... I don't have a great question for how we market it. Largely, the way we got connected is how this gets marketed. Do a good job for people. Yeah. I mean, and the crazy part for me is, like I've said, I'm a third generation steward of this. I could probably walk in the room with this IP and hardly know what I'm doing and you're going to get value out of it. The IP is the gold. And so I mean that sincerely. I, I do think my facilitators are outstanding at this work. But there's a combination between a what I think is a world-class professional facilitator and what I believe is the best intellectual property in this space. And so the same way... Doug, that you and I were connected, you get a happy client generally creates more happy clients. 
And my favorite part is the gentleman who connected you and I only has experienced the tip of the iceberg of what we offer. And that's one of my favorite parts of this is... And so that's a really long answer to... I don't actually know what to do from a marketing perspective because I have different fires burning than that one, if that makes sense right now. And I'm blessed to say that. I have fires burning. They're just different ones than that right now. So it's a fortunate problem for us to have right now. We should have prefaced with this, but could you just explain, and we're coming up on time, but I want for those that are listening, and I'm sure there are several families that we work with that would find something like this interesting. Can you just give an idea from the perspective of whether it's, you know, how many families you work with in a round numbers, what's the typical size of the net worth of the families that you work with, a range of net worth? And then we talked briefly about the cost, but what is a typical range of cost for the services for the full life plan to family strata? Okay. So let me do my best on these. So obviously we operate under full confidentiality. So anybody that's listening, that's considering this, obviously their name would never come out in an answer to this question. There are Many families that have been served by this and are currently served by this, they are families with multiple billions of dollars of business revenue, et cetera, in their portfolios that are managed. There are families that are, you know, call it probably closer to like a 10 or $20 million, like that are just really, really interested in the future health of their family or they anticipate a ton of growth. So we're kind of in that broad of a spectrum. There's one of our groups is into the fourth generation, which is kind of extraordinary if you think about the age gaps there, I think. The other thing is we actually keep pretty good professional barriers on... Like I technically could go see all of the work. We like to compartmentalize it just for the safety of the information and the families. There's a couple ways we go about processing this. So I'll try to answer this question as best I can here. Our client is technically you guys in a lot of cases, because a lot of times the relationship is built with people like you, and then we become a part of your offering. If that makes sense. That's typically the way you handle it. doesn't have to be that way. But an estimation per household on life plans is probably somewhere between six and $9,000 per household life plan, which is a really robust situation that we do with each household. And so there's a variability in there. Someone says, well, how much does this cost? There's a variability to... I don't know how many households we're dealing with, but that's a, a unique thing that has to happen with each household. The family strat-op work, the organizational design work in the constitution creation is a pretty steady thing for us. And that's generally somewhere between like a $27,000 and $40,000 episode based on the number of people involved and how long each one of those things take. But there's a ton of work that gets done in there. And then our fifth element is in this, we have sort of a five-step process we use. And then the fifth step is management around it. And that's also a variable thing based on the family's appetite and their ability to connect. And that's generally a, an additional 10 or 20% of cost. But that's generally the smallest and that's completely dependent upon whether they want to do quarterly calls or semi-annual meets, or we're just meeting annually and doing whatever that looks like. That's a pretty subjective to what their style is. So that's kind of a ballpark on it. But our goal is to get through one through four and between 120, 150 days and then get out of your guys' way so that you guys can go help assist them getting where they want to go. So is that all right? Does that help? Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense that just from a planning perspective, when we're meeting with clients, a lot of our clients at this point are either transitioning away from or have fully transitioned away from operating businesses and yeah. fully living off of a portfolio. But we talk about this with people all the time, that it doesn't mean that you don't treat your life and your net worth like a business anymore just yeah. because you're not operating in a business. The same should be true for a family as well, mm-hmm. specifically families that have intergenerational dynamics that are working on, 
you know, passing wealth down from generation to generation and then making sure that there's legacy there, that should be treated just like a business as well. Now there's different dynamics because you're all blood related, but it doesn't mean yeah, that things absolutely. should be changed. There should be a mission statement. There should be core values. There should be direction that's derived and there should be constraints absolutely. and roles within that organization. And I think that that's what you're talking yeah. about here. So I think it makes complete sense. You know, you asked a minute ago, like, what's the cost and what's the time and investment and all that? And this will sound very sales-ish, but if someone sat down and thought about the cost of it not being done right, I mean, you guys probably have a number of stories, but I mean, it's not just costly financially, it's costly emotionally, it's costly potentially physically. Like there's just, it's a space where there's a dramatic need. We love the opportunity to be able to help people actually do what they want to do with what they've got and what they've been blessed with in the world. And I'm fortunate enough to have some pretty cool tools to do it. Right. There's a difference between cost and value. And in this specific case, and in our industry as well, too, there's a tremendous potential value in terms of avoiding issues down the road if it's done incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a really interesting discussion with you, Jason. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Before we part, I want to ask you a question and get your opinion on something football related. <laughs> okay. The Saints a couple of years ago played against the Denver Broncos when they had their whole quarterback department. All three quarterbacks got exposed to COVID and the outcome was pretty horrible. I saw the importance of that single position on the football field. Yes. But I wanted to get your opinion besides quarterback. What do you think the most important single position on an NFL team is? I think I know the answer to it, but I want to hear from you. So you might be baiting me into telling you what I really think, but I'm going to avoid offending your, <laughs> your, your, uh, your audience with what I really think. It's one of two people in my mind. It's the center mm -hmm. or potentially the long snapper. So it's basically the same role. I was going to say the long snapper. Yeah. So now I could argue the punter because if you go three and out and you're on the minus 10 yard line, like you can go three and out on the plus 10 yard line and not have a kicker and it's not going to kill you. If it's the minus 10 yard line, like that's a bad deal because you're literally looking down the sideline. Can anybody punt this ball? So you're really in jail, but if, right. it's really, really hard to play football without a clean exchange to the quarterback or the punter or holder. Like it's mm -hmm. a turnover is such a detrimental thing. And it is consider the highest probability points for a turnover in football are I mean, the thing that happens the most often, you don't always throw the ball. You don't always run the ball. There's not always a handoff. There's not always a pass. There's always a center quarterback or a snapper specialist exchange always. And it's the easiest way for a turnover every time. So not having that nailed. I mean, the Panthers had four of them yesterday, or something like that. So speaking of quarterbacks, how many pass attempts do you have in your career? Uh, a couple, two or three and. The best one I ever had was completed for, and we got like one yard too little for what we needed. But <laughs> unfortunately, in our position, a lot of times, like you'll get credited with a pass attempt. Let's say there's a botched exchange on a field goal. And if, if I just go on the ball, we actually lose all that yardage. If I pick the ball up, run and get outside the plaque and throw it away, we pick up eight yards, right? So it seems like a silly thing, but I've got a couple of those where you basically go get an incomplete pass on your resume that you had no intent of completing at all. You were just trying to save your teammate yards. Plus it hurts less to throw the ball away than get landed on by the biggest people in the world that right. they trained to land on you hard. So I was generally interested in getting out of there. Our head coach, most of my career was pretty focused on a more conservative approach and we didn't take a ton of risks. His whole thing was like, if we're going to throw a pass, why don't I get the guy that I'm paying like $20 million a year to throw the football, to throw the pass instead of the guy I'm paying to kick the ball 
why don't the other guy throw it? And so I, I understand his logic. Well, coming full circle, well, Greg, you have your opinion on the most important position besides quarterback. What is it? I was going to say long snapper because I think there was a game like maybe it was the Steelers long snapper got a concussion and the entire game fell apart for them. And there's not a bad deal. Right. The backup long snapper, those guys rifle the ball between yeah, their legs. They don't get the reps. So there's other little things that nobody would ever and nobody's going to care. But like the backup long snapper is probably a linebacker. He might be like a, an offensive guard and he's got wrist tape fingers taped these bulky giant gloves and all of a sudden like hey buddy go go snap the ball and he's like it's like doing it with boxing gloves on right there's just no there's nothing about it that's a good deal it's literally like in a boxing match or something when somebody gets a cut over their eye and they can't see anymore like you're just like fighting with one eye if you have no long snapper it's almost a turnover every time you're on fourth down so that's right. a bad deal right just yeah. go for it you have to go for it every time and it's also not a good feeling if you're the guy back there wondering what's about to happen for this guy who hasn't snapped a ball in three weeks right. that's about to throw one to you <laughs> When you're thinking, do I get to kick this or am I going to be dead in a minute? Right. That's going to be the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> do I get to walk back? <laughs> it's got to be it's if they're snapping at like 10 miles an hour back to you. <laughs> yeah. When their defensive players run past the snap on their way back to you, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Lanyap Podcast with Greg and Doug Stokes. If you enjoyed this, please give it a like or share it with your friends and family. And we hope you join us next week. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.